For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. Hello, my guest today is Jessica Sidman, food editor at Washingtonian Magazine. Before joining Washingtonian in 2016, Jessica was food editor at the Washington City Paper. She covers people and trends in the food and drink scene in the region. And today we'll talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the area's restaurant industry. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before the pandemic, just to paint a picture, as you very well know, Washington had gone through a bit of a renaissance in our restaurant industry. And having lived there myself for a lot of the past 20 years, it seemed that every season there were new restaurants opening and that Washington residents were rediscovering places that had been around for decades, if not generations. In fact, right before the pandemic hit, the New York Times ranked Washington, D.C. number one in places that it recommended visiting in 2020. And among the reasons for putting D.C. at the top of the list was that the New York Times said, in recent years, Washington has watched its already rich culture and dining scene blossom, offering a vast menu of fresh sights and tastes. And among the restaurants that they were highlighting, it's several Michelin-starred restaurants, as well as younger, forward-thinking restaurants, including Ethiopian and and Laotian food, well-represented. So it was an incredibly vibrant restaurant scene. Absolutely. We've just absolutely seen the dining scene explode over the past decade and finally getting the national recognition that it's due. I think for the longest time, the city was seen as a very steak and potatoes town. And now, you know, you have the Michelin interest in DC. You have people who come from all over the country. You have the city on top of all of these national rankings. So it's been an amazing time for DC dining. And then the pandemic hit. And with huge impacts on restaurants around the country, including here. For you, what were the first signs that the pandemic was going to have a big impact on the D.C. restaurant industry? So I was thinking back to the very beginning. I believe the very first story we wrote about COVID had to do with some of the backlash against Chinese restaurants in February of 2020. And there were some local Chinese establishments that saw their sales dip as people became really irrationally worried that for whatever reason, that was more of a risk than any other restaurant, which of course it wasn't. But very quickly, that fear expanded across restaurants. And I I just remember going to my lunch spot and all the condiments that are usually laid out for people to serve themselves were suddenly gone. 
And one of the first things people were talking about restaurateurs was private events dropping off because the travel was one of the first things that got hit. And it very quickly escalated. I mean, really, this is just a matter of weeks, a week. You know, I was writing a story about how people didn't want to share plates anymore. Uh, but before I even finished it, you know, the entire restaurant economy had been shut down. Wow. Do you recall when that was exactly? Was that right at the beginning of March or about when was that? It was mid-March. I'm forgetting the exact date, but I remember, you know, it was kind of over the course of a weekend. It seemed to just close down all of a sudden. It felt extremely sudden. So actually, how did your own reporting have to shift? Because what you were reporting on suddenly had drastically changed. So how did your reporting shift in that time? So, I mean, we're a regional magazine. We cover lots of fun things to do in the D.C. region. And I think at the time we were working on waterfront dining package and like, what's going to be the drink of summer 2020? And immediately all of that fun stuff became obsolete and the only story for months. And the big story now, more than a year later, is COVID. When it comes to impacts on restaurants nationwide, the restaurant industry ended last year with sales that were $240 billion below the original forecast for 2020. Around the country, more than 110,000 eating and drinking places were closed temporarily or permanently. And across the year, the industry had lost two and a half million jobs compared to the pre-COVID level. So all of this is nationwide. Did you observe this playing out in DC's restaurants? Absolutely. The industry here has been very hard hit. I wrote a story about a Spanish cider bar and restaurant that is closing one of its locations because of the hardships of the pandemic. I mean, they did all the pivots that you could imagine. They launched a market delivery program to bring people fresh seafood and meat and produce and deliver cider to their door. All these different marketing efforts with the to-go cocktails. But even with all of that, this past year, they've only been doing 50% of their normal sales. And their landlord was still charging them full rent. And even with some of the federal aid programs, which have helped, you know, it just wasn't enough. And ultimately, they're closing. And we've seen so many restaurants close over the past year. I I do think, you know, things like the PPP program and other local and federal government aid has really helped. But I think we're going to continue to see the financial and economic reverberations of this really for months and years to come. So when I think about the impacts of these changes in our restaurant industry on our region's food security, I think about the ways that food security has been disrupted around the world because of the pandemic. And across the board, it's the economic disruption brought on by COVID. So lost jobs, lost wages, et cetera. That's had the greatest impact on household level food insecurity. Before the pandemic, there were an estimated 4.4 billion dollars in sales in DC's restaurants annually. So given the importance of DC's restaurants to the region's economy, the restaurant industry disruption certainly contributed to the spike of food insecurity in our region, which we saw and in really extreme ways. 
The Capital Area Food Bank said that last year, the number of people experiencing food insecurity increased by 50%, literally by hundreds of thousands of people. And the number of people that were using the Capital Area Food Bank's pantries and partner organizations increased by up to 400%. So we saw a huge spike in food insecurity in our region. And I think it's in large part due to jobs and wages lost economy-wide, but it's including in the restaurant industry. And I think that the recovery of the region's restaurant scene is going to be essential to the recovery of the economy. And it's only once we do that that we'll be able to reduce food insecurity in the region. Mayor Bowser declared that retail and non-retail businesses, licensed food establishments, including in restaurants and taverns and many other places, may resume full operation with no capacity limits. And that certainly made headlines when restaurants were given the green light. What did you observe as a result? It's been a tricky balance, you know, because people wanting to be safe, but also wanting to have their businesses open to be able to support their employees. In DC, at least, it was it seemed very sudden, actually, that we went from 25% capacity, which was one of the more stringent restrictions across the country at the time, all of a sudden to 100%. And so the big thing right now, really one of the big restaurant stories across the country is the staffing shortage. Because you have so many people in this industry who have taken the past year and realized, you know, this is not easy work. Maybe this isn't what I want to do. It's kind of unstable. It's hard. You have to deal with difficult people. So you have a lot of people who've left the industry and are looking for other kinds of work. You have people that are still dealing with childcare issues, so they can't go back to work who might be caring for people. There just aren't enough people to staff these restaurants. So even some of the places that are allowed to open at full capacity can't operate at full capacity because they simply don't have the people to run them. Yeah. So I've certainly heard about that, read about it in the news, but have you seen that? Absolutely. Every single restaurateur I talk to every day says the same thing. They're having a really, really hard time. It's just across the board. So the two takes that I read on that issue are, on the one hand, it's unemployment benefits are too generous. They're keeping people from wanting to work. So they're just staying at home and not worth working. That's one take. Another take is that they're actually allowing people, as you were mentioning, to reassess the reality of their employment, recognizing that wages were incredibly low, relying on tips for a living is incredibly precarious, there's no benefits, etc. That problem with wages in the restaurant industry existed before the pandemic, but do you think the pandemic will have a lasting impact when it comes to that? So what I've heard so far is, yes, some wages are being forced up and salaries are being forced up because you just can't hire people otherwise, for the most part. Obviously, it's been kind of controversial about, you know, whether the unemployment benefits are too generous or have lasted too long. And I think that could certainly play some part, but I don't think that's the full story. As I mentioned, all the other factors about quality of life and childcare, et cetera. So I recently talked to a restaurant recruiter about wages and salaries. And do you see the minimum wage is up to $15 an hour? and In the past, that was probably where, say, dishwashers would have started at at minimum wage. Now that 
has been pushed up at least a couple dollars, you know, 16 or $17. He was saying, you know, maybe 18 to $22 for cooks. And some of the mid-level salaried positions, you're also seeing a boost to some salaries and entry-level sous chef or manager. Pre-pandemic might have been 50 to 60,000, now 60 to 70,000 or maybe more for someone who has a little bit more experience. So that's good news for our workers. I think the problem is also for servers because they are relying on tips and not all dining rooms are back at that full capacity. And so they're still dependent on what we give them. As we were saying, even before the pandemic, there are a lot of legitimate critiques of that wage structure because the amount you would receive in tips could depend on gender, on race, on on other characteristics that just weren't equitable. Absolutely. You are definitely seeing, I think because of the pandemic, a greater push for the quote unquote one fair wage to eliminate the tipped minimum wage and just have a base minimum wage of $15 an hour. You have seen some restaurants eliminate tipping in favor of a service charge, maybe anywhere from 15 to 22%, which then they can split more equitably among front and back of house staff. And there are, are some pros and, and cons to that, but I do think there's more interest in that because it, it does create a little bit more stability. That's quite interesting. You helped me understand something that I saw at a restaurant in DC recently where they had the service fee, but they also requested tipping on top of that. So I I was a bit confused, but you helped me understand where the fees would go. But just also to note that the tipped minimum wage of $2.13 an hour has remained the same for the past 30 years in our country. Right. And in DC, the number, I believe, is a little bit higher than that. It'll go up to $5 an hour in July. And not to get too in the weeds, but just to explain to listeners how the tipped minimum wage works, because a lot of people don't really understand it. But if you're a server or a bartender, you make in DC about $5 an hour from your employer. You're required to make $15 an hour as a total minimum wage. So the balance of that is made up by your tips. So essentially, the customer pays the majority of your wage. And if you fall short of that 15, your employer is required to make up the difference. How do they enforce that? Do you have to then report your tips to your employer? Part of the problem is it's not always enforced very well. And that's where various wage theft issues come into play. And that's one of the main arguments for the quote unquote one fair wage. So it'll be so interesting to see if the pandemic gives an extra push to that campaign and if there might be a lasting impact on people's wages. And again, this being critical to our region's food security because household level income is the single most important determinant of food security in in our region and around the world too. And so I just want to talk a little bit about the resilience that you've seen in some of the restaurants and how you think the industry is doing recovering right now. So after the pandemic hit, how did you see restaurants adapt and what are some of the best examples of resilience that you observed or experienced yourself? First of all, on the point you're making about food insecurity, it's amazing when you consider all of these businesses that were struggling themselves, actually feeding the communities that they served. There's a 
big beer hall in my neighborhood called Hook Hall that converted into essentially the headquarters for an industry relief effort where they provided free meals thanks to donations to other hospitality workers who'd lost jobs and needed a hot meal or needed supplies and groceries. And you really saw that model at so many restaurants. There were places feeding hospital workers in the middle of all this other frontline workers. And meanwhile, just completely reinventing their own businesses overnight, you know, fine dining restaurants that were suddenly takeout joints. And obviously the to-go cocktails, which previously, you know, that wasn't actually legal in D.C., and they changed the laws. And that has been a, a huge boon for a lot of businesses. The streeteries and the outdoor dining, you've seen so much creativity, whether it's these igloos or really elaborate outdoor setups with tents and whole environments. Restaurants that became grocery stores and markets, you know, the steakhouses that were suddenly just hawking cuts of meat or the pizza joint that was selling its neighbors eggs and flour, which, as you may remember, was a very hot commodity at one point and launching delivery programs that maybe they've never done delivery before and figuring out the logistics of that. So it's kind of amazing when you consider how quickly these businesses were able to adapt. Yeah. To your point about restaurants becoming part of the response, um, another good example I am aware of is medium rare. They started establishing community refrigerators. So no questions asked, freshly prepared, balanced meals available for free at community centers across the city in partnership with other restaurants like Duke's Grocery and some others. So thanks for bringing it up. That's an excellent point. Other changes in the restaurant scene that you you might expect seeing as a result of the pandemic? I think some of the pandemic era changes will stick around. I think, for example, delivery is going to continue to be a big thing. People just are now accustomed to having that option and they like to have that option. So that will stick around. We've already seen, at least in D.C., they've permanently allowed restaurants to sell cocktails and beer and wine to go. The streeteries and the outdoor seating, that I think is going to continue to shape our streets and sidewalks in the years to come and, and change the way we think about public space. And restaurants understanding more that they have to diversify and whether that's jarring up that special sauce they have and selling it or you know whatever it is I think you're gonna see that a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic were saying that fine dining is dead and everything's gonna move casual fast casual from now on and I certainly think you know we'll continue to see a lot more casual and fast casual. I mean, that's been a huge trend anyway for the last several years, but I actually completely disagree about fine dining. I think people over the past year have been starved for that special experience and that is always going to have a place. A lot of people, you know, on the higher ends of our economy who are sitting at home 
watching their stock portfolio rise and not spending money on travel like they usually did. They actually do have the disposable income now to spend on fine dining. So I think that that will continue to thrive. Now, we're recording this in early June, so by the time we release, this could change. But one thing that's been reported in the news recently when it comes to the region is that while restaurants were um, given the green light to fully reopen, Metro is allowed to open, remain open only until 11 p.m. And then some Metro buses, I, I think Metro bus can remain open until 1 p.m., but that doesn't coincide with the times that restaurants and bars close. And so you have restaurant workers having to spend a lot of money on transportation when public transportation is not available. So they rely on Uber, for example, which means that for the restaurant workers who make a little bit more, like the servers, they're spending a third or up to a third, which is a huge amount of their wages on Uber or ride sharing to and from work. And then for those who make less at restaurants like bussers and dishwashers and food runners, they're losing some estimate up to three quarters of their wages. So the economy is reopening in fits and starts. And I think that this is something will clearly have to be addressed. What else do you think the regional governments can do to make this a smooth transition for the restaurant industry? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, certainly the transportation issue is a huge one because, you know, a lot of the restaurant workers don't live near the restaurants where they work. Many of them live in the suburbs and a lot of the restaurants are in D.C., so that can get quite expensive. I think the Restaurant Revitalization Fund will be a big boost to restaurants who are able to get money, although it sounds like they're running low on funds. But the truth is, yeah, businesses are going to continue to need support. They've done a lot to get this far, but they're not out of the woods yet. Thank you. I want to shift gears to two DC specific questions not related to the pandemic. One has to do with how presidents and their administrations can affect our restaurant scene. So our current president has a very different approach to our restaurant scene than the last president, uh, which is a lot more in keeping with presidents before him. How do you see President Biden's relationship with DC restaurants unfolding? And uh, do you have any predictions to make for the future? Right. So Biden has so far been to three DC restaurants in his short time in office, which is triple the number of restaurants visited by his predecessor. Trump only ever went to one restaurant, which was the steakhouse in his own hotel. There's a lot of excitement around these visits. I mean, we have to be honest, this is a very liberal city, mostly Democrats. So there wasn't already that much excitement about Trump hitting the town. We used to talk about in the Obama days, the, the Obama bump, when he and Michelle would go somewhere for date night. And the next day, the sales of that restaurant would just double because everybody wanted to go there. Everyone wanted to be in that place, order what he did. I don't think Biden is quite the foodie that Obama was. Maybe Kamala Harris is. But you're still seeing that excitement. I mean, he visited a taqueria in D.C. And now they're offering a Biden bundle where you can get exactly what Biden ordered. So I know there are a lot of businesses that would like to get that attention. And 
I think that attention is extra important right now, given the struggles that restaurants have gone through over the past year and continue to go through. It just brings that extra attention to their plight to have the leader of the free world in their dining rooms. And you asked about predictions for the future. My prediction is that Biden will soon be making an ice cream excursion. Oh, that's right. I think I saw a report on that. (laughs) He's a well-known chocolate chip lover. And I think it's really only a matter of time before he goes out for his favorite frozen treat. But I also wonder what might emerge as the establishment known for Biden staffers. So I heard that Back in the day, Clinton staffers loved uh, Loyal Plaza, and then President Bush's staffers loved to go to Stetson's on U Street. And then I'm not sure if there was any one place for the Obama administration, but then, of course, you mentioned Trump with the Trump Hotel. I just wonder what might emerge as the Biden place. Yeah, yeah. I think in the Obama years, it was kind of along with the emergence of 14th Street and and all that. So that was considered Obama staffer territory. And I mean, you have to remember that actually a lot of the Biden people are Obama people. That's right. But I don't know. I'm not sure uh, anything has emerged so far as the go-to place or go-to neighborhood for this administration. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.